coming up. Um, I will be starting uh, next week my prospective members class. And so if you have been visiting Grace and uh, you are interested in learning more about membership here at Grace Baptist Church at 915 next Sunday, we will begin our eight-week class that I, that I teach. And uh, we'll be doing that in the conference room. If you are planning to come, if you could just talk to me about that and make sure we're all on the same page and get you in the right place next Sunday. And then May 21 and 28, uh, we're going to be doing uh, a couple of special things on uh, the Sunday evening service, uh, be actually allowing to you opportunity to ask questions. And uh, so if you have a question that you're just dying to hear my answer to, um, ask away, okay? And, uh, but I would ask you to get those questions to me by May the 15th, because I want to be prepared and don't particularly want to answer any without thinking through it first. I've been praying about where we're going. I'm going to do something official today. We're going to start summer today. Is that okay? Doesn't mean summer, you know, vacation starts tomorrow for the academy. We still have school tomorrow. Um, but we're going to do a summer series this year. We're going to take the next uh, 12 weeks, and we're going to be looking at really the issue of spiritual maturity. And uh, we're going to be looking at 12 areas in our lives where I believe that we all need to grow and mature and uh, where we need to uh, become more like Christ um, in these areas. And so we're going to be looking at the first one this morning, and we're going to be calling uh, this one Growing in Gladness, uh, or you could say it this way, Maturing in Gladness. And so we're going to be looking at Psalm 32 and uh, talking about that in in just a moment. When I was in college, my freshman year in college, uh, my nephew, uh, his name is Kevin, and Kevin played on on a baseball team. And uh, I would go to a lot of his games. He had played for the same team for a couple of years while he was, he's a few years younger than me, obviously. And um, I would go to his games. And uh, the coach's daughter, I remember, was always in attendance at all these games as well. And we would sit in the stands together and she was, she was there. And I kind of got to know the family a little bit. And when I, think about, when I think about the definition of gladness, This young lady's smile is still imprinted in my mind. Uh, This girl was always happy. She was always upbeat. Uh, She was always polite. And she was one, if you were sitting in the stands and somebody said, hey, you know, I could really use a Coke right now, she would be the first to say, hey, can I go get that for you? But here was the issue with this young lady. She was born with a degenerative leg disease. And she had braces on her legs that allowed her to walk, and she walked with crutches. She couldn't go anywhere without them. And I remember as I got to know this family a little bit, I got to know her dad through baseball. We had a common connection with that, and I umpired a couple of their games for them and that sort of thing. They invited me over to their home, my nephew and I, to go swimming with them one afternoon. And so my nephew, Kevin, and I, we drove over to their house, and we walked in, and we're sitting by the pool, and the family was there kind of sitting around on the deck, and... And I can remember, this is not one of my finer moments in life, we're sitting there and finally the daughter says, are you guys ready to get into the pool? And I looked at my nephew and I said, yeah, you know, we're ready to go swimming. And she said, well, I'll join you in the pool in a minute. And I said, I don't, how? <laughs> and she looked at me like I had seven heads. What do you mean? I'm getting in the pool just like everybody else. And after a few minutes of preparation, some special, swim gear, some special swim gear and a little assistance into the pool, she was in the middle mixing it up with just the rest of us. To this day, she is probably the happiest, most joyful 
person that I have probably ever met in my life. I don't know her. I don't know what happened to her. I quite frankly can't remember her first name. But I know this. I'm sure there were times of struggle in her life. I'm sure there were times when she was discouraged. I'm sure that there were moments when she had difficulties like everybody else. But she was a young lady who was a picture of gladness. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? The answer to that question is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Here's a mistake I think we make sometimes. We believe that enjoying God and having gladness in God and rejoicing in God is something that is reserved for us when we die and get to heaven. We do understand that rejoicing in the Lord and being glad in the Lord, and as this answer is, enjoying God forever begins now, today, right here, even in the midst of a world that is terribly broken. We are called to enjoy God. Psalm 1611 says this, you make known to me the path of life in your presence There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. My question for you this morning is, do you struggle with gladness? There is, forgive the illustration, but I grew up in the 80s. In the 1980s, not the 1880s or (laughs) 1680s. For two weeks, I looked this up yesterday, for two weeks in 1988, the number one song in America was Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy. How do you people know about that song? (laughs) What are you listening to? Don't Worry, Be Happy. That song has been used repeatedly since 1988. We use phrases like turn that frown upside down, show joy, and so Psalm 32, we're going to do something even more daring than preaching in the middle of the service, look at the last verse, and we're going to work backwards, okay? We're going to get to verse 11 in due time, but verse 11 says, be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all of you that are upright in heart. If you write in your Bible, you could circle three words in that verse, be glad, rejoice, And shout. You know why? They're all three commandments. They're all three imperatives. So let's back up and we're going to ask ourselves this question. To grow in gladness, we have to understand the common gladness destroying traps that we all fall into. What is stealing your joy today? What is keeping you from being glad? Well, I'm just kind of a ho-hum kind of person. I'm just kind of wired that way. Just kind of a Eeyore, maybe. We could say it that way. You know, those people that have a gift to find something wrong with everything and everybody, and they find they just have a God-given gift to be critical. Let's not be like that. Let's look at five gladness killers today. What, What is killing your gladness this morning? What is keeping you away from experiencing the gladness that God wants you to have? And and so let, this is actually a, the, 
the wrong version of this, but that's okay. The point should be right. My initial title was Five Gladness Zappers. That was the original title. I changed it to Killers, so you have to forgive that. You didn't know that, so I told you that, but that's okay. Five Gladness Killers. Look at verses 1 through 5. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou shalt forgive the iniquity of my sin. The first thing that is destroying the gladness of believers, is refusing to confess and repent and forsake our sin. We know that David, in fact, if you look at the title, it tells us that David wrote this psalm. And David, as he's working through this, he uses several different words to talk about the issue of sin. He talks about the issue of forgiveness. And we have this word that occurs twice. It is the word blessed. It's a Hebrew word from a Hebrew word uh, that is ashray. It means happiness or blessedness. This word is in the plural of, of the usage here is in the plural, which means this person is overflowing with blessing. This person, he says, blessed, verse 1, blessed, verse 2, this person has an overabundance of blessing in his life. And who is it? A man whose transgression has been forgiven. A person who has experienced the greatest blessings in life are people who have come to acknowledge their sin in a salvation sense and they have repented and they put their faith in Christ. They've been born again. They're a child of God. They are the most blessed. And when we forget that, we are prone to losing our joy. Now notice how David defines this. He defines, he uses the word transgression, which is a word that means rebellion. He uses the imagery in verse one. He says that this transgression, this rebellion is forgiven. It's not only forgiven, but it is also covered. Remember that David was the one who had a pretty substantial mountain of sin, didn't he? He was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of deceit. He was guilty of lying. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of hypocrisy. And yet he says in the midst of this that the one who is truly blessed, his transgressions, his rebellion against God is forgiven, and his sin has been covered. This is a picture, by the way, from the Day of Atonement. This was the day in which the high priest of Israel would take the blood of a sacrificial animal and carry it into the most holy place in the temple and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a picture, this picture of the the blood covering our sins on this day of atonement. And we know that Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice. He would be the one that would ultimately cover our sin and that our sins could become white as snow. Not only that, in verse 2, he says that the Lord does not impute our iniquity. Impute there is a word that is borrowed from a bookkeeping uh, world. It means a ledger, that our ledger has been 
changed and that our sinfulness has been transferred into the column of forgiveness based on Christ and based on his finished work that we are now forgiven. Now, here's another um, word here that David gives us. In King James, it's translated, it says, there is no guile. The word means that there is no deceit. There is no deceitfulness in this person. Sin always is deceptive. If you are going to continue in your sin, you have to be a person that is living a life of deception. Now, let's make this distinction for a moment. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whose ledger is found to be righteous because of the finished work of Christ. That is a once and for all transaction. It is the word justification. We are, we are saved from our sin. We are justified. We are, cons- we are considered to be righteous based on the blood of Christ that we are now forgiven for all eternity. We are now, we call it, born again or saved. That's true. But here's the problem. And I, assuming I'm talking primarily to believers this morning, is that even as believers, there are times in our lives that we allow sinful choices and behaviors to come into our life. We're not talking about matters of preference. These are things that God clearly says are sinful, they're wrong. Things like, as David's illustration, lying, being being deceptive, and adultery, and committing these sins. They are sin. And what happens is when we tolerate these things into our lives, my friend, if you are a believer, you will not experience gladness. Because like David, as he says in verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones waxed old. There was ramifications for David's lack of, lack of acknowledgement. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will obtain mercy. Notice the effects of this covering of sin that David experienced. First of all, he had brittle bones. There were physical effects of his covered sin. David's physical stamina and vitality was drained, leaving him in a miserable state. Internal anguish led David to experience an external wasting away. We know that unconfessed sin affects our physical well-being, making gladness very difficult. So if we take the salvation piece for a moment, yes, we are forgiven, we are born again, but we bring sin into our lives, we harbor sin in our lives, we cover sin in our lives, we become deceptive and we deceive people and we're lying and we're pretending to be something we're not, my friend, you will not experience the joy of the Lord. You can't. And not only that, not only did David have physical effects, he also had emotional effects. Notice what he says. He goes on and he says that when he kept silence, his, he was roaring all day long. The word is he was groaning. There was this emotional experience that he was going through. And there was also spiritual effects. He talks about in verse 4 that God's hand was heavy upon him, that there was conviction of sin upon him, and he was suffering. But notice what happened in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin, and my iniquity have I not hid. I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. 
If you're going to experience gladness in your life, you have to make sure that you are not harboring sinful choices. So one of the, one of the killers of our gladness is when we tolerate sin and we allow it to fester in our lives. But let's look at a second one, and that is found in verses 6 and 7. And we see here that not only are we going to, is sin going to affect that, but we also refuse to seek God. I can't, uh, if you could help me click that, this isn't working. Um, that we refuse to seek God. Look at verse 6. For this shall everyone that godly, that for this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they have not come nigh unto me. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. We notice here that the psalmist David says that everyone who is godly should seek the Lord in prayer. This is pleading with God, pleading with God for forgiveness. He gives us this picture of especially when times of great trials are coming, pictured as water overcoming us. And this psalm, this, this, this verse 6 and 7, there's a sense of urgency in his call to prayer. And reluctance to seek the Lord compounds the problem. And God, he says, will not be available to those who persistently refuse to seek him. And he says that God is our hiding place. He is our refuge. God will preserve us. Came across a quote, by the way, in this, this picture where he says at the end, verse 7, he says, the songs of deliverance, God will compass me about with songs of deliverance. One writer said it this way. He said, God surrounds the faithful, not with strong defensive walls, as might be expected, but with songs of deliverance. These are songs of victory. These are songs of deliverance that are an impenetrable barrier to the enemies that we face, and they cannot be overcome. Where do you go in times in which you feel isolated or you feel that you're in despair or you feel that you are experiencing a, a period of sadness or you have lost your joy, where do you go? Because very often, we'll get to this in a minute, we get to application, is that very often we believe that happiness is always found in things that are outside of us. That we can go to something in creation and we're going to go to that thing and we believe that it's going to make us happy and we believe that we're going to be glad and we're going to experience joy. And most of us, if we've lived any length of time and we've tried that a time or two or a thousand or a million times before, we know that we come back bankrupt. And so rather than seeking God and rather than investing in our relationship with God, we try to find comfort, we try to find security, we try to find joy and gladness in the things of this world and we come up empty every single time. Why? Because we're refusing to seek the Lord. In the moment of a trial, the moment that you experience hardship, where does your heart go? Do we immediately go to the refuge of our soul? Do we immediately go to God? But here's a third way that we lose our gladness. And third road, uh, third killer of our joy is refusing God's instruction. Look at verse 8. I take 8 and 9, by the way, is now God speaking. And he says, I will instruct thee 
and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go, and I will guide thee with mine hand. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, who has no understanding, whose mouth must be held with a bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. He says that there's part of, t- part of the time when we lose our joy is because we refuse to listen to God's instruction. Psalm, 18, Psalm 16, 11, we read a few moments ago, the first part of that verse says, you make known to me the path of life. God has revealed to us the way that we should live. He has revealed to us principles and laws and applications, and he's given us principles to live by, and he's given us commandments to live by. And sometimes we take the commandments of God as if they are just suggestions. The book of Proverbs tells us that wisdom is standing on the street corner yelling and screaming and calling out to those who are simple, those who are foolish, those who are not listening, and she is yelling for your attention. And so very often we just tune them out. We just turn the dial. We turn the channel. Or we begin to believe foolishly, arrogantly, That rule doesn't apply to us. Yeah, I know God said that if I do that, it's sin, it's wrong. But I'll be fine. I'll be the exception. Arrogance, it's foolish. It's pride. Talk about this just in the little rules of life, the little things of life. And I feel, I fear we're teaching young people today, kids, that, you know what, rules just really don't apply to you. you. Just do your own thing. The problem is when it comes to God's instruction, just do your own thing. Create a God in your own image. I often think about God's commandments as the banks of a river. A river has power and it has the ability to move only when it stays within its banks. And so, so very often we believe that happiness is found outside of those banks of the river and we want to step outside. Well, what you find outside of the banks is mud and swamp and misery and destruction. And God says, I am here to instruct you. Then he gives us this image. This is a pleasant one for us to think about, that refusing to obey God and not humbling ourselves under God's instruction, you've become a mule. You become an animal that requires a human to be harnessing it with a bit and a bridle, that you have, you have become arrogant and self-sufficient. So we lose our joy when we refuse God's instruction. But let me give you a, a fourth one. And that is when we refuse to trust God. Look at verse 10. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like unto thee, which delivers the poor. Um, Let me read the right. Let me read the right uh, psalm. Sorry about that. Uh, My page turned. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. He has this comparison. There are those that trust God and there are those that don't. The wicked, he says, that they will experience many sorrows. Proverbs 3.33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. So when we refuse to trust God, and we'll, we'll talk about that one more in a little bit more in a moment when we get to application, but let me give you the last one, and maybe, and this is one we'll spend the last little bit of our time together, 
Here's the, here's the brutal truth. Sometimes we don't experience gladness in our life because we refuse to. We say, well, Pastor, why did he say that? Verse 11, commandment, be glad. Don't want to. I don't, ooh, feel like it. Be glad in all of your circumstances because they are always perfect. That's what it says, right? Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, you who are righteous. You could say it this way. Rejoice, you who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And whisper to yourself that you're happy. This makes Baptists uncomfortable. Shout for joy. We get nervous if somebody claps or raises their hand a little. Shout for joy. Like express it. That you're happy. That you're glad. He says, shout for joy. All you who are an upright heart. And sometimes, you know what steals our joy? Our own selfishness, our own sinful hearts that refuse to be glad. We refuse. If I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but if God commands us to do something and we refuse to do it, who's in error? God? You know, God, you know, if, if I could just talk to you for a minute, if, if you would start answering my prayers exactly how I'm telling you to answer them, And if you would correct all of the external circumstances that I'm going through, not diminishing that they're not hard and difficult and problematic, but God, if you would just fix all of those things, then I would be absolutely joyful and happy all the time. No, you wouldn't. You know why? Because you have a sinful heart. And we have hearts that are drawn away from this. So for sake of time, we don't don't have time to pull that apart much farther. But I want to very quickly um, just read a few verses. Just listen for a minute. Listen Listen to, and this is only a a short list. This could be a much longer list. Listen to these verses. Psalm 9, verse 2. I will be glad. Do you notice the volition in that? I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name. Psalm 31. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy. Psalm 70, verse 4, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let the Lord God be magnified. Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. John 15, 11, these things have I spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Scripture is filled with it. But we allow ourselves to get derailed. We allow ourselves to lose our joy and our gladness And oftentimes, it is by our own choice. Some of you, I'll put myself in here, some of us, need to stop hacking away at the weeds of changing our external conduct and dig down to the root that is 
feeding our behavior and have a complete shift in how we see the world. If I may, let me, let me just give you sort of six practical helps to change our paradigm and how we approach God and how we come before him. Number one, distinguish between fact and feeling. We all have a voice inside our head that serves as a narrator. Although this narrator is tricky because a narrator is, in a story is supposed to be unbiased. But this narrator also is a commentator and gives us commentary about what's going on in our life. And we assume that the way we see things, that they are accurate. And we don't often question our emotions. We don't often question our responses. Reality is we're not as objective as we believe ourselves to be. And sometimes we're controlled in our emotional response and our objectivity is lost to an even greater degree. Most of the time when we're experiencing depression, discouragement, despair, sadness, a loss of happiness, it's because we are being controlled by our feelings and often by our misperception of the world. Often we misrepresent reality in times of discouragement. Sometimes we get discouraged by our circumstances and don't leave them. As we looked at in the slide right there, verse 10, we don't trust God with them. But faith isn't driven by feelings. Faith is simply believing that God will do what he said, even when it doesn't feel like it. When we're feeling discouraged, when we're feeling depressed, it won't feel like God is loving. It may not feel like God is kind. It may not feel like God is faithful. But that feeling is simply not true. And the problem is when circumstances come at us, we believe that our happiness and our gladness and our joy is an outside-in endeavor. If I lived in a better house, if I lived in a different state, if I moved to a different town, here's one that I've seen in my counseling ministry. If I was married to a different person, then I would experience happiness. And you might for a brief period of time. But the problem is, when you move to the new town, you move to the new house, you get the new car, you move to the new state, you move to the new city, you trade your wife or husband in for a new one, you take your sinful discontent with you. It's not an outside-in proposition. It's an inside-out change. If I'm going to experience joy and gladness and happiness. So, first of all, I got to distinguish between fact and feeling. Number two, I have to allow another mature believer to remind me of the truth. In the midst of the confusion of day to day living, do you ever forget what's true? You have a, a friend, I have a, I have a wife who's very good at speaking truth when I'm confused. And when I feel like I've blurred the line between fact and fiction, we need another believer to speak the truth into us. Number three, we have to let the word of God to be the anchor of our soul. You may feel lost in the dark, but your shepherd is walking right beside you. 
Jesus knows what it's like to be overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. But Jesus is never overwhelmed because he has an infinite amount of strength that is available to you. But often, as we looked at a couple of slides ago, when we are discouraged and our gladness is, being, uh, being, is evaporating from us, we don't go to God. We don't seek him. We seek the things of the world. We seek something in the material world that we believe is going to bring us happiness and satisfaction. So we have to distinguish between fact and feeling. Allow another believer to speak the truth into our life. Let God's word be an anchor. And and number four, this sounds pragmatic, but be in tune with where you are physically. Are you under physical duress? Sometimes when we're discouraged, we're just tired. The difference between the two is a good night's sleep. But four and five are probably where we need to expend our energy. Embrace the wonder of God's world. I want to be glad. Embrace the wonder of God's word. 1 Timothy 6, 17, command those which are rich in this present age, not to be haughty nor trust in the uncertainty of riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Choosing to enjoy God's creation makes us glad. Going for a walk, sitting in the sunshine. Here's one. Michelle and I have crossed over that line into... We're now old enough to do things we said we would never do. We have a bird feeder that is hanging from our tree. And I never, one of our trees, and I never imagined the day would come that we would stand at the window and say, well, look at that bird. (laughs) It's just bizarre. When did that happen? We, We went on vacation last summer. We were up in the mountains of Virginia. We rented this house for a couple of days. And, and I, I, I generally like to get up early. And I was outside on the porch by myself and just kind of looking out. And, and there was this, this spider web. And the spider was still there working on it. And, and there was dew on it. And the sunlight was hitting it. And, okay, this is another one of those moments. Like, I never imagined myself doing this. I probably watched the spider weaving his web for like 10 or 15 minutes, and I stood there and studied the intricacy of the web that he had created. You know, that's a, that's a silly little spider. But sometimes when we get sad and we get discouraged and we forget who God is, sometimes we just need to be reminded of God's Magnitude. We're going to sing the song, I think, in the end, at the end of our service today, the song Indescribable. And one of the reasons I love that song, it just reminds us of God's power, of God's creativity. And oh, by the way, God created you. As the psalmist said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, unique. God's creation, and sometimes to experience gladness, we just need to experience God's world. But let me give you the last one, and then we'll sing. Sometimes you just need to decide to be glad. 
While we cannot control our circumstances, we can control our response. We can choose to be glad in the Lord. And ways to do that. Well, first of all, I can take an honest evaluation of myself. If you're really bold, solicit help from somebody else. Negativity and criticism can become a bad habit. Are there people that you work with, people that you know, that quite frankly, you hope they don't show up at the water cooler tomorrow? And you see them come in and they walk in, you're like, oh man. And as soon as they walk up, you know what our boss did today? He's so stupid. If I was boss around here, I'll tell you this place. Rah, rah, rah. And then the, my wife is such a loser. My rah, rah. And all they do is gripe and complain and be miserable. What the saying is, misery loves what? Company. Some of us like it. Some of us enjoy it. Why is it that some people seem to have the God, I'm being facetious here, the God-given ability to thrive in criticism. Well, take an honest evaluation of yourself. Is your gladness being stolen because you are, quite frankly, a negative person? And then ask yourself a deeper question. What idol are you worshiping when you fall into this habit of being critical and of being unhappy and being negative? What are you seeking? My experience tells me that sometimes negativity can be a cheap way to form a bond with other people. At least we're miserable together. You want to be miserable? Yeah, let's do it. Who do we want to who do we want to gripe on today? Who do we want to complain about? Sometimes our negativity is our attempt to feel significant. Listen to the words that we say when we're critical and when we're being negative. Well, all I know is I wouldn't do it that way. It's like, again, I hate politics as much as you do, but, you know, we can sit here and and we can criticize whoever's sitting in the White House and we can criticize them all day long. And the reality is, you know far less than he knows about what's going on in the world. Then we take it even further, and we criticize God, because certainly God doesn't know what he's doing. And the reality is, the percentage that we know compared to God's knowledge is ridiculously low. But we sometimes fall into negativity because it's a bond, it's a cheap bond with other people. Sometimes it makes us feel significant, or here's one, sometimes it just is a way to get attention. If I'm miserable, then somebody will come and encourage me or commiserate with me. But you know what? I believe in the power of the gospel to change people's hearts and lives. And I believe verse 11 says, Believer in Jesus Christ, you are commanded by your holy, righteous, almighty God to be glad in the Lord. You who are born again through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, you are commanded to rejoice. You who have been blood bought by the Redeemer, by the Son of God, the Lamb of God, came to pay the sin price for you. You are commanded by God to shout for joy. I can't do that, Pastor. I'm just 
It's just not my personality. So God's a liar? You can decide to change. Let me give you some even more practical ones, then I'm done. Three negative, and then we'll end on four positives. Number one, don't get drawn into negative conversations. If you are not part of the problem or part of the solution, get out of the conversation. Because I guarantee you, you get sucked into them on a regular basis, you won't walk away feeling Jesus loves you. Number two, don't allow your emotions to influence, excuse me, don't allow the emotions of others to influence you to adopt their emotional state. Don't get drugged into the mud with people. Don't allow your inner narrator to dictate how you view life circumstances. View them from God's perspective. Here's one. Choose to smile. You ever, you ever walk down the road and just look at the expressions people wear? I mean, if looks could kill, how many of you have been killed this week? There's this, we have muscles in our mouth that allow us to do this. And you know, it's really hard to go, I really hate your guts. Life's really miserable. Isn't that hard to do? Smile. It won't kill you. It won't hurt you. It won't take away from your life. In fact, it'll make you glad. Here's one. Compliment people for doing something right rather than criticizing them for every little thing they do wrong. Number whatever, speak well of other people. Well, they don't have anything good to say about them. There's, nobody's that consistent. Nobody. There is something. And then the last one is decide to give up on the temptation to complain or be unhappy. I personally believe this, and you can disagree with this if you want, but I base it on Psalm 32, 11, and unfortunately I fail at this from time to time just like you. I believe every morning When I get out of bed, I have a choice to make of whether or not I'm going to be glad in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord or I'm not. I believe it's a choice we make. I can't choose my circumstances, but I can choose my response. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Changing your level of gladness will never be achieved by using an outside-in approach to life. You can't change what's outside of you to make you permanently happier. Changing your level of gladness will only be accomplished by employing an inside-out process. The answer to your gladness problem is to glorify God and enjoy Him. doesn't even say glorify God and enjoy your spouse. doesn't say that. Enjoy him. Are you glorifying God in your life? Enjoying God isn't an activity that begins, as I said before, when we get to heaven, it begins now, and it carries over into eternity. You can enjoy God today. You can experience true gladness and joy in God today. John Calvin said this. He said, it is necessary for us to go outside, it is unnecessary for us to go outside of ourselves and find happiness. The chief, let me get it right, if I could. I'll try it again. John Calvin said this. It is necessary for us to go outside of ourselves to find happiness. The chief good of man is nothing less than union with God. Gladness should be the baseline 
the baseline heart attitude of every believer. And I hope that's true about you, Pastor Wes.